Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Scott McCartney discusses his book, ENIAC, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the World's First Computer. Scott McCartney, author of ENIAC, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the World's First Computer. Why'd you write the book? Uh, I was covering the uh, technology industry for the Wall Street Journal, and it, uh, it occurred to me that I didn't know who invented the computer, and uh, that struck me as, as very strange. I was covering personal computer industry, Compaq, Dell, IBM, and uh, really was uh, not as aware of the origins as I should have been. And uh, that sort of coincided with um, the 50th anniversary of ENIAC uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania. So as I learned more about ENIAC, um, realized there was a pretty incredible story to tell there, and, and uh, that just just kept getting deeper and deeper into it. How much did you know about computers before you started? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I knew a fair amount about personal computers. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about uh, the origins of the computer or mainframe. Um, I, I, I'm of an age where uh, the computer for me was very much transitional. Uh, I went to college without a computer, but I installed the first computer system at our campus newspaper. So it was, you know, it was all happening. And I thought, you know, here, here we were on the pioneering edge, and it hadn't occurred to me that so much had happened 40 years earlier. Why is that, that it's not known? I, you know, I think, I think uh, things have changed so rapidly that there hasn't been time to go back and sort of assess the, uh, uh, the roots of it all. Um, we, we have enough trouble keeping up with, you know, one innovation after another, and uh, uh, the PC has just exploded on the scene. Um, I, I think uh, computers 40 and 50 years ago were, um, it, you know, they were inaccessible to uh, most people and, uh, and were a bit mysterious and not very, not very well known, although some of them did sort of have their own personality and, uh, and became famous in their own right. Um, but, you know, I think another thing, another reason why I wanted to do the book was it seemed like a very good time to take a step back in the history of, of technology and look at a lot of these questions of who invented the first computer and how did it evolve. And, uh, you know, we have a much better sense today of what a computer is and what are the defining characteristics that have made um, uh, so much change. And uh, so with with that advantage of hindsight, um, it was a good time to go back and explore the roots. What was that first computer you installed at the newspaper? Uh, it, it was uh, a very rudimentary, um, uh, essentially a, a mini mainframe system uh, built by a company out in, um, oh gosh, Nebraska or so. And uh, we had dumb terminals in different departments at the newspaper and a central uh, storage disk and, and controller, and we were able to write uh, stories and transmit them to the central controller and from there send them across the university campus to the place where uh, 
uh, things were typeset, and it was it was revolutionary. I mean, it was you know when when I uh, went to college in 1978, we were still typing out on paper and cutting and pasting and and literally carrying the copy over to the comp shop where it would be typeset. Um, and this this was a great savings, but you know the thing was slow and it was always going down and and. Uh, had minuscule memory, and uh, you know it's really pretty amazing. Were you the guy they looked to every time it had a problem? Oh yeah, yeah. Middle of the night calls, and you know, the, what do we do with this? What do we do with that? But you know, we were college kids, and people picked it, picked it up pretty quick. How much did you have to learn about the technology in order to write this book? Uh, a fair amount. Um, uh, I, I was uh, my knowledge of vacuum tubes at the time um, was limited to. Uh, Brief memories of the RCA repairman coming with a with a little dolly full of uh, vacuum tubes to fix our color television in the living room. Um, I didn't know much about that at all, uh, and certainly not about um, the logical design of computers. Or um, uh, I'm I'm not uh, not an engineer by training, and there was a great deal of engineering that went into this. Now we are sitting here at the ENIAC Museum at the University of Pennsylvania. Why is this museum here? Uh, this museum's here because this was the birthplace. Um, this was the, we're in the building where uh, the first modern computer was built on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, the, in, the, in the basement of this building, it's, um, it's a fascinating history. In the basement of this building, there was a machine called a Bush Differential Analyzer, which was a big, long contraption of um, gears and wheels and rods, and, and you would do uh, differential equations um, by setting different gears to different values and, and actually cranking this cranking the problem through this thing. Uh, the Army in uh, at the start of World War before the start of World War II uh, was in desperate need of computational power. Um, what they needed was something that would calculate trajectories for artillery shells. Um, this work was being done down the road in Aberdeen, Maryland. Uh, and they came to the University of Pennsylvania because they had this machine in the basement, the Bush Differential Analyzer, and got them to um, help do it. Uh, Penn had uh, a, a staff of women, uh, many of them mathematicians, who were actually doing the work down there. Um, they were also using Monroe desk calculators, which were essentially good old adding machines with an arm you would pull back, and, and using those to do um, the computations. Um, as, uh, as war drew nearer and nearer, uh, professors were, were called off to war, and the Army was um, in desperate need for electrical engineering help. Um, there was a, a physicist named John Mockley who had uh, gone to Johns Hopkins and was actually teaching uh, over at a little college called Your Sinus College. And um, Mockley. Collegetown, Pennsylvania. Collegetown, Pennsylvania, exactly. Um, Mockley wanted to predict the weather using uh, computations, and that was, that was his dream. And he had, he bought, uh, during the Depression, he had bought his own Monroe desk calculator on the cheap from a bank that failed, and he was doing all this stuff. He had his, his students running co uh, computations on weather patterns and things, but it was never enough. He never had uh, enough computing power to um, solve his weather problems. So, he ended up enrolling here at Penn in a course that the Army was offering uh, to train people in electronics because the Army needed uh, people for radar and different, you know, new areas of electronics that were going to be vital to World War II. 
Um, Mockley just wanted to get the, the knowledge of electronics. He wasn't real interested in helping out the Army. Uh, but he ended up being paired with a graduate, uh, or a, uh, a soon-to-be graduate student here at the university uh, who had just completed his undergraduate degree, a fellow named Presper Eckert, Press Eckert, who had grown up here in suburban Philadelphia and uh, was, was a brilliant engineering whiz. Um, and they got over across the street at, a, at an ice cream shop. They would start talking about Mockley's dream of couldn't we build a computer? And Mockley actually produced a, a paper for the faculty here. He was hired on af after the course because Penn needed uh, desperate need of, of faculty people. And um, uh, Eckerd thought that Mockley was onto something and that they could actually build this machine. The first proposal for what's the modern computer was, was I think, pretty uh, conclusively shown, uh, was thrown away by the faculty here at Penn. Um, but Mockley got, uh, one of the Army fellows uh, heard about the proposal and tracked down Mockley and they recreated the proposal, ended up taking it to the Army, and, uh, and that was the birth of the ENIAC project. And you described Mockley as a dreamer. Yeah, very much so. Um, Mockley was um, worldly wise and, and uh, would, would carry on these wonderful conversations about all kinds of things. I mean, people remember him uh, leading discussions about Alice in Wonderland. And as a professor over at uh, Ursinus, he became famous for uh, what was called a Christmas lecture, kind of the end of the semester, where he would dress up as a Russian roller skater to de demonstrate the laws of physics or things like that. Um, but he, you know, all of his life, even, even very late in his life, he always had huge dreams and was always sort of too far ahead of his time to be successful in a practical sense. Um, uh, but, um, I, you know, if he hadn't had the big dream, um, I don't think this would have ever happened. And Presper Eckert? Yeah, Press Eckert um, was... Uh, what kind of a name is Presper? It, it was a family name. I think it was actually his uh, grandmother's maiden name. Um, and he is, uh, you describe as a true Philadelphia blue blood. Right. He went to uh, Penn Charter School and... Uh, uh, was from taken a, there by a chauffeur. Every driven day. there by a chauffeur, um, lived uh, near Connie Mack, and, and uh, uh, his father was a fairly prominent developer, and um, they would, uh, oh, there's even a picture of, of press on uh, with um, Douglas Fairbanks and uh, press on a golfing outing with uh, President Harding, and uh, the, the Eckers were, were quite prominent. And, and Press was an amazing kid. He, uh, at a very young age, won a science fair here in Philadelphia um, by, by putting together uh, what essentially was an amusement he saw in Paris um, of, of boats on a lake. And uh, Press figured out a way to put a magnet in the bottom of the boat, and then through electricity, uh, pull the magnets around and you could steer the boats by using this electro-mechanical thing that he built and won the science fair. Um, he did, did very well at Penn Charter uh, and was going to go off to MIT, but uh, his mom didn't really want him to leave home, uh, so he ended up uh, here at, at Penn. Hey, you write in the book, you tell a story about uh, he always had a white linen shirt with a monogram and a black necktie. Always recalled one of the women, Kathy Mockley Antonelli, who later became Mockley's second wife. I asked him why once, and he said, this is what my mother put out for me this morning. 
He lived a very pampered life. Yes. But he lived a pampered life, and yet he seemed driven by by this project or by things that he got involved. He in. he would be fanatical about a project. I mean, the the uh, people told me stories about press. Um, he would get so wound up in a project that you that he would get up and walk out the building and never know that he had left the building. Um, he had his his wife would. Um, uh, ask him to go downtown to look at uh, furniture and he would say okay but he would drag somebody from the project along and they would carry on a conversation about some sort of problem the entire time while he would look at, at furniture with his wife uh, he, he had this uh, uh, he had a pocket watch chain without a watch and you could always tell when press was getting really wound up because he would just just twirl the chain uh, around his finger and untwirl it and twirl it and untwirl it. And I'll read you this other thing. You say he, you describe him as a whirlwind of quick, nervous energy. And one of his uh, co-workers said he had a fiery temper that could make grown men speechless. There wasn't a single one of the staff that he didn't tell him where to solder the joint. Some mornings he came in and told engineers to tear up what they had done because he had thought of a better idea overnight. So it sounds like he was kind of difficult to work for. He, he was. Um, in a sense, people loved working for him because he was so brilliant and because he was um, so driven. But on the other hand, uh, he, he was not one to hand out praise, and he was incredibly demanding, and the hours were just, you know, around the clock, um, uh, manic. Uh, uh, there was a great story about uh, a fellow who went for a job interview with, with Press, and he would show him his engineering drawings, and Press would sit there, and he would go on for 15 or 20 minutes about other things that the guy could have done with, uh, with his drawings, and then say, okay, show me the next one. And the interview was never about the engineer he was going to hire. It was all about, you know, Press's fascination with, uh, with anything mechanical. Now, how did driven Press Eckley and dreamer John uh, Eckert, Eckert and John, John Mockley, how'd they get along? Uh, they got along great because they complemented each other so well. And uh, they, you know, I think one of the fundamental things of this team was that they understood their own shortcomings and they understood that they needed each other. Um, you know, it was, it was fascinating to me that uh, they were very different personalities and yet they had had very similar childhoods. Um, uh, Mockley uh, was, was much more middle class. His father was a scientist, but w when he was at a young age, um, he loved to read at night, and uh, he, he, his parents would get mad at him for leaving the light on too late. So he wired a sensor under a stair. This is when he's about uh, 10 or 12 years old, um, so that when his parents would come up the stairs to check on him at night to make sure his light was out, it would, uh, they would step on this loose uh, board on the stairs and that would trigger a sensor and he'd turn out the light and parents would go up a, a couple steps and yes the lights out and they'd come back down and that would trigger the sensor again and give him the all clear and Eckerd was doing the same things he was wiring up uh, intercom systems for his father's apartment buildings and and um, put a, a sound system at and into a, a crematorium at one of the local cemeteries here uh, to sort of um, provide soothing sounds throughout the grounds. And so they had similar fascinations, but they were so different. Uh, Eckerd knew he needed Mockley to, for, the, for the logic, for the big picture, for the, for the motivating dreams. And Mockley knew he was never going to get anything built unless he had Eckerd to build it. What's an osculometer? An osculometer is an invention that uh, Press Eckerd came up with uh, for a dance here at the university. 
where um, the uh, legend was that if a couple held hands and with these paddles from the osculometer and kissed, the machine would measure the intensity of the kiss. And there was a whole scale of light bulbs and it would go, you know, all the way up. And if you were really good, the machine would go, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> and what, what the engineers knew and uh, their dates didn't know was that if you got your hands kind of sweaty and, uh, and, you, and you, could, you could make an electric circuit with the sweaty palms and the paddles and your date's hands and the lips, and it was, it was really all a function of how wet you got your hands <laughs> that would make it go. And that's, you know, Eckerd had, had a wonderful sense of humor. And he would do things like that from time to time uh, that, that really endeared himself to people. So when Eckert and Mockley got together and they decided, okay, they're getting the funding from the Army, we're going to build this computing machine, how much did they know beforehand that made them think it would work? Uh, you know, uh, they were really taking a leap of faith. Um, they thought it would work, but they didn't really know. And uh, uh, many, many eminent scientists of the day said there was no way that it would ever work. Um, the, the basic problem was that um, behind these panels here are uh, hundreds of vacuum tubes. And there, there were 40 units in the machine, 18,000 vacuum tubes. And vacuum tubes are notoriously unreliable. They were always breaking down. And so if you had 18,000 of them, what are the odds that the machine would ever work for any length of time without one tube or another breaking down? And one tube could destroy your, your whole computation. So MIT and others looked at this, this plan and said, this will never work. Um, Eckerd uh, really thought that he could engineer enough control into it and, and enough, uh, he was just a nut about quality control, that he could design it so that it would, it would work. Um, he, he tested every tube he could possibly find and ended up uh, using tubes in ENIAC that were used for undersea telephone cables. Um, and he ran them, if, if they were uh, built for a certain voltage, he ran them at a much lower voltage uh, to, to prolong their life. Um, he only used them as on-off switches rather than amplitude, uh, rather than, it didn't have to be as accurate. You didn't care uh, how much voltage was actually inside the tube. It was just an on-off switch to Eckerd. Um, he, he even went as far as he took every brand of wire he could possibly find and put samples in a cage with rats. And uh, whichever brand of wire was least appetizing, that's what he used in ENIAC uh, to minimize rat damage. How much wire did he need for the computer? Uh, there, were, there were several miles of wire. I mean, it was just, just enormous. Uh, it filled, the machine filled 1,800 square feet, about the size of you know, a pretty good size apartment. And um, it was through that quality control that Eckerd produced a machine that in fact did work and could run for long periods of time without a tube breaking. Another thing he did, just, I mean, this is in, in 1944 and 45, just amazing. It, it's a it's a complete modular design. If a tube, the tubes were mounted on what he called uh, trays. And if a tube failed, you just pop out the tray and pop in a spare tray, and you were, and you were back in business um, in no time at all. And uh, so it was, it was through that engineering skill that he really made it happen. 
You talk about vacuum tubes, and yeah. this is a tube, and it turns out that the two people running camera here are on the young side, and they don't remember <laughs> tubes in radios and televisions. So for those people, can you tell me what this is and what it did or does? Sure. A, a vacuum tube, um, essentially the, the simple ones had three elements. There would be an emitter of electrons and a collector and a grid that would um, control the voltage. They were used most often um, for telephone and radio and television as amplifiers. You could control the, the current of electricity uh, very well with the vacuum tube. So that's how you get the modulation in old-time radio or in uh, early television. Um, they were, those things were filled with vacuum tubes. Um, in, uh, in ENIAC, they were essentially used as an on-off switch, very much like a light switch. And uh, Eckerd designed um, a thing with, at, at its core, two tubes together called a flip-flop. And when one tube was on, uh, that was the normal state. And when it was off, that was the abnormal state. And you needed two because it would toggle back and, and forth. And um, that's how he was able to represent numbers uh, with these on-off switches. That if you, if you look up the uh, accumulators, there's 0 through 9. And each of those uh, numbers corresponds to a couple vacuum tubes. Depending on the state of those tubes, that's, that's how the information was stored in the, in the computer. Now, this is the world's first digital computer. And, and can you describe for people who don't understand what digital means, just what sure. it means that it's digital? Well, uh, there's analog and there's digital. Uh, analog would be like the speedometer on your car. It's uh, an approximation. It's a, it's a needle showing certain values it moves in, in, a, in a wave. Um, digital is a very discrete value. It's like the odometer on your car where you know, it rolls over to 20 miles or 20.1 miles or wh whatever. Um, analog, by its nature, is, is not as accurate as digital. Um, computers up until ENIAC were essentially in uh, um, the uh, computer is, um, they weren't really modern computers, but, but the computing machines of the day were analog where, like the Bush differential analyzer downstairs, where the gears and wheels and numbers would be represented by a place on a wheel and it would turn. And if things got worn down or out of alignment or whatever, it could affect the value. And you kind of look at that wheel and say, it looks like, like 8. Um, that would be the value. Uh, digital, uh, is, it has to be 8 or it has to be 7. But there's a, there's a specific thing that tells you whether it's 8 or 7. So digital is much more accurate. The, the other great advantage is uh, it's um, in a computer where digital uh, goes with electronic, it's much, much, much faster. And speed was really the whole, uh, speed was everything. Um, I mean, even then, we, you know, we, the PC, Intel is constantly cranking out faster and faster chips. It was the same for Eckerd and Mockley. The thing that John Mockley needed to do his weather computations was speed. And uh, the, the whole reason he went to a digital machine and an, an all-electronic machine was that he knew that was the only way to get the speed to do the size of calculations that he wanted to do. Now, you, you said that speed was even then an issue, and now every couple months a new computer comes along that's vastly faster. Is, is there a limit to that? I mean, why the, the emphasis on speed? Well, the, the faster the machine can calculate, the more you can, you can calculate, the more you can do. Um, if you have 
uh, an enormously complicated problem and a slow computer. As it, as it turns through and gets different values and has to go back and do this, I mean, you, you may never, never get to the end of the problem. Um, and particularly with machines of, of, of this era, the, if it was a big, long problem, the machine's going to break down. Even the, even the analog mechanical ones would break down uh, before you'd ever get to the problem. So you couldn't put on, uh, there was a limit to the complexity of the problem that you could do with the machine. And even today, uh, you know, it's, it's the speed of the computer that allows us to do more and more things with the internet. Uh, you couldn't download graphical uh, websites unless you had a very fast computer. The faster your computer, the faster uh, it'll, you know, flash up the information from that website. Or the more complex problems you can run on your PC. Or if you're in the supercomputer realm, you know, the faster it is, the more finely you can run your calculations on, say, uh, nuclear explosions or, or something like that. And when I, we're building this computer with, what's it, 5,000 tubes? Uh, 18,000 tubes eventually, right. Did they have cooling or did it just Oh, very much, hot? yeah. Well, the, the tubes uh, have a heater in them because uh, they have to be hot to give off electrons. And so the tubes generate enormous, 18,000 of them generates enormous heat. So in the bottom there were blowers and fans and, and cooling system that would try and uh, blow up through the machine and, uh, and blow the heat out the top of it. How many people were on the team that put it together? Uh, there were um, about a dozen people in sort of the, the hardcore of the team. Um, they brought in six women to do uh, the programming on it. Did they call it programming then? Uh, they did, yeah, actually. And one of the interesting things is um, the women themselves were called computers. Um, the, the people who were downstairs doing the calculations and all, they were they were called computers. The term computer didn't really apply to a machine. They called them calculators and calculating machines and things like that. And, uh, and, and that term got transferred from the women to the machine. How did they know as they were in the process of building it that they were on the right track? Uh, early on, um, they uh, got two accumulators together and, uh, and Eckert and Mockley wanted it to multiply five times 1,000. And uh, they called some of the women in um, and uh, loaded five into one accumulator and 1,000 into the other and said, you know, multiply the two together and store the product in one of the accumulators. And lo and behold, it said 5,000. And they went nuts. They were ecstatic. And some of the women looked at them and said, so, you know, <laughs> you need a computer to multiply five times a thousand, but uh, for them it, it, uh, it, you know, was verification that the thing was actually going to work. When was it finished? It was uh, finished in uh, the fall of 1945 uh, after the war was over. It um, wasn't much help for the war effort uh, at the time. It was dedicated in February of 1946 at a, at a public unveiling here in Philadelphia. What did they have it do? What was it capable of doing? Uh, gosh, it was one of the great things about ENIAC was um, it was it's a general purpose machine, and uh, and it was capable of doing all kinds of things. The, the main reason for that was the Army wanted a machine to calculate differential equations for the artillery shells, the the trajectory, um, and it could do that. But Mockley wanted his weather computer, 
So they designed it to um, be general purpose, to do both. Uh, the Army used it for, for years and years to, in fact, do uh, artillery shell calculations and all, but um, also to do all kinds of things uh, like run uh, calculations for um, nuclear weapons programs. In fact, one of the, the very first problem, the, the, the shakedown crews for the machine, was a problem um, that uh, came from Los Alamos. Edward Teller and uh, some other folks from Los Alamos were trying to design the first hydrogen bomb. And they thought they were on the right track. They, they came to Philadelphia to put the, the problem on ENIAC, and uh, ENIAC told them that they were wrong and, uh, and showed them that they were wrong. And Teller said, okay, I understand that, but so now I know how to do it because that's wrong. That points me in the right direction. Uh, and they, you know, obviously did, did solve the problem. But uh, ENIAC, I mean, the Army used it for eight years. It, at one point, uh, some folks told me they were um, uh, calculating uh, weather patterns in Russia. And I said, well, why are you calculating weather patterns in Russia? Well, for nuclear fallout. The Army wanted to know where the nuclear fallout would go at different times, things like that. When all was said and done, how much did it cost? Uh, about a half million dollars, which was a lot of money in 1945. Uh, during the war effort. It was, you know, it, there was a great leap of faith here. I mean, it would have in many ways never have happened if not for the war. Um, that was a lot of money to sink into John Mockley's pipe dream. And um, the, the Army was desperate. Uh, I think there, there, there was also a feeling that uh, big scientific projects could yield a result. I mean, the Manhattan Project, which preceded this uh, by a little bit, um, was was you know very much a leap of faith, a more expensive, uh, uh, more challenging leap of faith in some ways. But um, it was sort of the same idea. Okay, let's you know it's wartime. Let's take a chance. Was there somebody in the army who who bought into it, and was the the chief person in the army who got it, them to yes, very it? very much. So it was uh, the main guy was a uh, lieutenant named Herman Goldstein, and uh, he was put in charge of the uh, ballistic, uh, the uh, artillery shell calculations uh, at Aberdeen. And he was a, a PhD mathematician himself. And uh, he, he, once he, he was the one that shepherded Mockley's proposal through the Army and convinced the Army that, that it could work and, uh, and then was very much instrumental in getting the project built here, um, was uh, involved in you know, some of the design issues was involved in uh, procuring all the, I mean, this is made out of steel, which was in short supply during the war, and this is made out of, uh, there's, you know, the tubes and the wiring, and all that was, was difficult to come by, and uh, Goldstein had, a, had an enormous role in that. He was, uh, in some ways, uh, he was a great counterbalance to Eckert and Mockley because, um, you know, he, he kept them on schedule, kept them on track, moving ahead, and... Uh, uh, spent, you know, hours and hours was with them constantly. Did the Army think they got their money's worth? Oh, yeah, I, I think uh, very much so. Um, and the Army is quite proud that it, it was the organization that, that funded the, the start of the computer age. Um, but, you know, the Army used this thing for eight years. Uh, if, you, if you look at how long computers last today, um, that was a pretty good deal. Can I ask you, ask you a little bit about yourself? Uh, where are you from sure. originally? From Boston. Originally grew up in, in suburban Boston. Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to Duke University, North Carolina. Studying? Uh, public policy. Um, 
I spent um, uh, much of my college time working on the uh, college newspaper. We had a great little totally student-run daily newspaper. We competed with the local paper in Durham and um, uh, produced a, a lot of journalists out of that. What does someone who studied public policy want to be when he grows up? You know, uh, uh, lawyer, journalist, politician, um, Public policy was uh, a wonderful program started by Terry Sanford, who was uh, governor of North Carolina and ran for president, president. Ran for president and uh, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful man. Was president of Duke when I was there and got to know him uh, very well. And um, uh, Terry wanted to educate leaders. Uh, that was his main thing. And public policy was um, a great hodgepodge of economics and history and political science and even religion and um, a lot of it was a, a cross-disciplinary field um, that um, uh, to me um, was was a great liberal arts education. Now of the many paths you could have followed, which one did you follow? Uh, you know, I, I went to college thinking I was going to be a doctor and came out um, uh, realizing that I could probably make a living as a journalist and uh, so so that's what I did. I, I um, went to work for the Associated Press, the wire service, and uh, spent 11 years there and then um, went to work for the Wall Street Journal. You work in New so, York now? Uh, actually I'm based in Dallas. Uh, we have a pretty good sized bureau in Dallas and I've um, spent my career working for New York organizations but uh, all in Texas. So. So you wrote this book in your spare time while you were holding down a full-time job? Well, uh, I, I took two different leaves of absence to, um, to get it done, but it was uh, over a three-year period. Um, it was a lot of weekends and vacations and things like that. It, it became a real labor of love. Um, uh, it, it just, you know, the more layers of the story you peeled back, the, the more interesting it got. And I, I'd get, I sort of felt a little bit like Eckerd. I'd get, you know, manic, and um, I had some wonderful uh, reporting experiences in, in Washington at the Smithsonian at the Library of Congress, and I'd call my wife and say, you're not going to believe what I found today, and this is incredible, and um, so it, uh, it, it was a blast. You meet any interesting people while you wrote this book? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, Herman Goldstein was, was uh, just a, a terrific, um, fellow, spent some time with him. Um, the, the widows of Eckert and Mockley, uh, both of whom live here in uh, the Philadelphia area, um, were just wonderful. Uh, uh, we had some wonderful days, and uh, you know they let me uh, go up into the into their attics and uh, explore through papers. And uh, oh, Judy Eckert has you know presses uh, science fair projects and his first patent, and uh, just you know wonderful stuff. Um, and then uh, some of the, uh, you know, the veterans who had uh, worked on ENIAC, the, the women uh, uh, who were the first programmers were just delightful, and um, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. Now, Mockley died in 1980, 1980 and Eckerd right. in 1990, what was it? Uh, so, it was 1995, right before the 50th anniversary. So you didn't get to interview No, Eckert. no, that's my one great regret. Um, one of um, Mockley's friends had uh, sat him down near the end of his life in front of a video camera and, uh, and did about 17 hours, I think, of uh, videotape. And so um, I sat and watched that. And 
it was, it was like being in John Mockley's classroom. I mean, he would just lecture and deliver these, tell wonderful stories and, and uh, was just a, a captivating teacher. And you go through that experience and, and I really felt like, you know, between that and, and his family and all, I was, I was really getting to know him and, uh, and hearing the stories about Eckerd and, and um, you know, rummaging through his house and seeing how he lived and all. Uh, I felt like I got to know these guys. You know, my one great regret is, uh, I mean, they, they've been forgotten, and, and they shouldn't have been. And, and they, I mean, these are the guys who built the first modern computer and founded the first computer company and never really made much money from it and um, ended up uh, losing credit for a lot of what they did to people with bigger reputations and, and all. And, and, you know, the, there's, there's a great injustice here. And uh, that was a lot of the motivation for me in doing the story. And, and one, of the, one of the great regrets is that they're not alive to see, uh, you know, history come back around on them. Why did they get forgotten? Oh, uh, I think, you know, some of it was a little bit of their own fault and a little bit uh, they got steamrolled by a lot of people. Um, uh, they, they set out, they left the university uh, under great controversy um, and set out on their own and their their company ultimately I mean, they built uh, Univac the first uh, commercially successful computer but uh, their company really struggled they were underfunded um, by the time uh, Univac became famous it was part of Sperry Rand and became Sperry Univac is, is today the what's part of uh, the Unisys Corporation out in Bluebell here um, and so, you know, in a way, it was uh, their, their lack of business success themselves kept them, you know, they weren't Bill Gates or Michael Dell or, you know, the business people today become uh, heroes in their own right. Uh, it wasn't to be for Eckerd and Mockley. Um, they got, there were some very nasty uh, fights over the patent on the ENIAC, essentially the patent on the computer. Um, they ended up uh, basically victims in a drive-by shooting um, on that. And... Uh, so for, you know, a host of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, pretty incredible circumstances, um, th they ended up, you know, left off by the wayside. Are there people who would read your book and say, wait a minute, that's not the way it happened. They weren't the people who built the first computer. Is that controversial? Well, what's, what's controversial is what you define as the first computer. Um, the, the Brits tell you, that, uh, that they invented the first computer because they built the first machine with an internal stored program. They have to have a stored program memory to be a computer. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's right. Uh, most people don't think that's right. Uh, besides, ENIAC had the capability to internally store some programming. Um, it wasn't a stored program concept computer. And the irony of the, of the Brits' claim is that they built it off blueprints that they got here at the University of Pennsylvania and happened to get their machine done before the computer here at Penn uh, because Eckerd and Mockley had left and the project here sort of fell apart and, and all that. Um, some of the Germans like to say Konrad Zuse invented the first computer. Um, his machines were... Uh, electromechanical. They were not all electronic. There were still some analog aspects to them. Um, there were machines like that um, built in this country at Harvard and um, 
Bell Labs and places like that. But to me, a computer has, has to be digital. It has to be programmable. Um, it has to be um, uh, general purpose um, because that's one of the defining characteristics of what we today know as a computer. And, uh, and it has to be powerful. And if you, if you take all that into consideration, then, then ENIAC is, is clearly the first. Um, there's another controversy over uh, whether Mockley was influenced by a fellow in Iowa named uh, John Atanasoff. And, uh, and that's ultimately what uh, led to um, the, in, the ENIAC patent was invalidated in the 1970s. Um, and, and that's an incredible, fascinating tale in its own right, um, which, which you know, became an important part of the book. Um, but I think it's, it's ludicrous to say that at Nassau's machine, which um, uh, never, never worked, really. Um, it's silly to call that the first computer. Now, sitting in front of this, how much of the computer is still here in the museum? Um, this is a, a wall full here. But yeah, this, well, well this, is, this is four units. There were 40 in the whole computer. So this is one-tenth of the machine, and uh, the machine itself was laid out in a U. There were panels up and then on the end and then panels back down. It was all symmetrical. And, uh, and this was, um, you know, this would sort of be near the, the start of the machine. Um, this was a unit called a function table where you could turn these dials and uh, set them from, for different values. Um, say you were doing an artillery shell calculation and you wanted to set the wind speed at 10 knots or something like that. You would, you would do that um, with this kind of thing. And then there's what's called a cycling unit um, where uh, that would generate the pulses that would run through the machines. Um, down here are the digit trays, which was the wiring that carried the pulses through the machine. The, the, the really monumental thing about ENIAC was that it was the first, it was the first machine to use electricity to represent numbers. And when you can do that, then you can get incredible speed. But essentially using, and this was one of the concepts that, that fascinated me um, working on the book was, was the whole notion of using electricity to think. And you know, how did that come to be? Uh, and it's something we certainly take for granted now, but it seemed, seemed kind of foreign. I mean, electricity, you know, lights things and it drives things and all, but it's not, it's not intelligence, it's not knowledge. So how do we get the, the waves to be intelligence? And so the waves would come out of the cycling unit, um, and this was one, uh, this was accumulator number 18 up there. It says uh, there were 20 accumulators, and those could store 10-digit numbers. And you would uh, move numbers around from accumulator to accumulator, use them to add. Uh, you could uh, put a little bit of programming into the accumulator and, and do different things like that. And then the, uh, the last unit there is um, one of the master programmers. And that was where you could literally uh, set, up, you'd set up the program, both with switches and with, uh, with some information that you would uh, give it electronically. Uh, last element there is that, that over your shoulder there. What is yeah. that and what does it do? Uh, this, is a, this is a portable function table. And uh, this would, um, you would set up your problem uh, and use this to represent all kinds of different constant functions. 
Um, I, I mentioned wind speed or you know, the, a, a lot of different things for, oh, for the artillery shell, humidity, temperature, uh, temperature of the gunpowder. I mean, you're producing uh, a lot of different things. And you could, this is on wheels, and you could take this thing and literally wheel it around to different points in the machine and plug it in. On the end, there's a big plug, and it would plug into a receptacle like that. Sort of like a big floppy disk. Well, yeah, actually, um, this is the, very much, this is the equivalent of um, read-only memory. I mean, this is, once you set these values, they're set. Um, but you need those kind of values in the computer. Now, you can do different variables um, with the electronic components, but, but this was, you would physically uh, set those switches. And, you know, it's, it's, it's crude, but it's ingenious. I mean, the thing, you put the thing on wheels and literally wheel it around, and that's part of your programming. You figure out where to plug this thing in. Um, it, it was really clever what they did. Now, your book refers to ENIAC as the world's first computer, but here at the ENIAC Museum at the University of Pennsylvania, at the top up there, it describes it as the world's first electronic, large-scale, general-purpose digital computer. Why all the qualifying words? Uh, because of the controversy, because of, of competing claims, because the university doesn't, didn't want to uh, uh, offend anybody. I, I use the term modern. ENIAC is the first modern computer. And, and that's, that's what I was trying to say. What, what is a modern computer? I mean, we're 50 years into it. I think we can, we can now decide what the crucial elements of a computer are. Um, and, and, you know, a computer has to be digital. It has to be general purpose. The, one, of the, one of the beautiful things about the computer is you can use it to run spreadsheets or you can use it to do word processing or you can use it to do graphics from the Internet or, or all kinds of different things. If you had to have a separate machine for each of those functions, it wouldn't be nearly as useful. So one of the defining characteristics of a computer is it has to be general purpose. Large scale just means powerful. Uh, and electronic is, you know, obviously a computer has to be electronic. Um, uh, mechanical computers just wouldn't make it in, uh, in today's, today's race. So that's the definition that has sort of evolved to uh, unequivocally say ENIAC was the first, but I think you can sort of boil that down into saying ENIAC was the first modern computer. Why did the patent become a controversy? Um, well, there, it became, the patent became a controversy because um, Sperry Rand had the patent, which they, they bought from Eckerd and Mockley, or Remington Rand bought, and it, it had come to Sperry Rand. And uh, Sperry was number two in computing, and IBM was number one at this time. And there were about, the, it was IBM and the Seven Dwarfs. There were six other companies, Honeywell and et cetera, who were trying to build computers. So Sperry uh, entered into a secret cross-licensing agreement with IBM, where for a very minimal fee, IBM got access to the ENIAC patent. And then Sperry went to the rest of the industry and tried to hit them with huge fees, I mean, enormous oppressive fees. Uh, Honeywell sued them, and uh, the case was tried in the 70s in uh, Minnesota. It, it, the ENIAC patent was the club that gave Sperry the ability to charge these fees, and it actually hadn't been awarded until the 1960s. So this thing was going to run until, I believe, 1988 or so. I mean, this is, the early 70s, very rapid, and the computer industry is sort of in its adolescence, very a time of rapid change and development. Um, 
And the judge found two reasons to invalidate the patent. One was simply that uh, Eckerd and Mockley had been late filing it. Um, it took them about two years for, for a host of reasons to actually file it. Um, and the judge decided that once they had turned the machine over to the Army, it was in public use. And so from that point, they had one year to file it under the law. And it took them two. And so it was they filed too late. Um, and the other was uh, he found that uh, Mockley had been influenced by this fellow in Iowa at Nassau. And so the um, idea for the original, uh, the idea to build an electronic digital computer came from at Nassau, not from Mockley. Um, that's just, just not the case. It's, uh, I mean, I found letters that Mockley had written that predated his um, visit to Iowa where he very clearly says uh, he's ordering neon tubes and things from supply houses because he says, I'm going to build an electronic digital calculating machine. He didn't have the, the term computer then. Um, at Nassau had, had been uh, very much aware of ENIAC. Had, uh, Mockley had worked for him later as a consultant. He, at Nassau had been involved in a project with, for the Navy to build a computer. Um, you know, the, the Army had one, so the Navy had to have one, and they turned to at Nassau. And, and he had never made a claim that any of this uh, came from him uh, until the Honeywell lawyers found him. And uh, so, you know, my conclusion is the judge very much did the right thing for the country. And this has happened before in the automobile industry and, and other industries, where he, he opened the computer industry up to competition. Uh, by invalidating the patent. and it, Nobody had the patent? Nobody had the patent. He did not award it to, to at Nassau. He just invalidated it. Boom. That's it. And so the industry, there are no royalties. There are no permission. There's no, you know, it's, it's fair game for everyone. And that was a very important uh, uh, thing in the computer industry to take that club away and, uh, and, and let everybody go off to the races. Um, but you know, I mean, that, Eckerd and Mockley were the, were the bystanders in this drive-by shooting, the fight between Sperry and, and Honeywell. Now, what did they do once they left the University of Pennsylvania? They started their own? They, they started their own. They, they went out on their own and, and uh, really struggled, um, built a couple different machines, had a, had a very hard time selling them. Um, one of the factors was there, there was a time when um, Mockley's security clearance was... Uh, was pulled. It was um, the McCarthy era, and uh, he was suspected by the Army of being a communist sympathizer. And his wife had um, drowned at the Jersey Shore uh, tragically, and uh, the Army was suspicious that somehow Mockley had been involved in that. Uh, um, uh, without that clearance, they couldn't get government contracts. The government was a major buyer of computers at the time. Um, that was difficult. Uh, the the crowning blow was um, they, were, they were building machines for, um, or one of their backers was a company that made tote boards for racetracks. You could use the computer to quickly uh, add up the odds for, for the racetrack. Uh, the fellow who was backing them in that venture uh, died in a plane crash. After that, the company pulled the plug on them with their funding there, and, uh, and so they had to sell. Um, Eckerd uh, ended up staying with uh, Sperry for a long time uh, out, out in Bluebell, uh, what's now the Unisys campus. And uh, Mockley went out on his own. Um, you know, the guy, we talked about him being a dreamer. The guy was, was always 
way ahead of his time. He tried to build a portable computer um, and built this, this luggable thing. Um, in fact, I, I ran into an engineer who had uh, worked with him on it, and they, the, it was so big it had a 250-pound printer, and the, and the carry it around, they sawed it in half, and so they put handles on it so they could, they could carry it around. But obviously, he, he was too far ahead of his time. I mean, everybody carries, carries around a portable computer, uh, but the, you know, the, the industry just wasn't where it should have been to have that venture be a success. Um, he tried, uh, uh, Mockley tried to um, sell an email system, of all things. Well, and, when was that? And it was, it was electronic messaging. Well, and, what year? And, oh, this was um, in the 70s. And, uh, you know, um, people weren't online. He was too far ahead of his time. Obviously, it's been an enormous thing, but um, uh, we just, he was, he was too far out there, and it wasn't practical. What of uh, that was in ENIAC, the portion of which sits before us here, uh, is similar to the computer that sits on people's desktops now? Uh, to me, a surprisingly large amount. Um, the, the basic architecture, the basic design, um, and when we talked about this thing as being the read-only memory and, and all, um, uh, if you, if you looked at this machine as kind of a blueprint, um, it, it would be the fundamental structure of a computer today. Now, it didn't have the stored program memory. Um, that came in the second machine that they designed. Um, interestingly, we were talking about von Neumann. That became known as the von Neumann architecture. And the von Neumann architecture uh, is used today. It exists today. It's, it's the, the basic architecture of a computer. Um, I, it was Press Eckerd who really developed what became known as the von Neumann architecture. Von Neumann published a paper about it, um, failed to credit Eckerd, failed to credit anybody but von Neumann for the idea, um, and so it became known as the von Neumann architecture. It was a great disservice to, to Press Eckerd, who had already figured out how to store a program electronically before von Neumann ever showed up on this campus. Um, and so, uh, uh, there, was, there was a neat project done uh, a while back where it was called the Computer Tree, and it was all the major mainframes and, and all that led to the, the, the PC, and all the branches came down, and at the, at the very bottom of the computer tree was ENIAC, and that's where it all sprang from that. How fast did computers spread once ENIAC was made? Uh, well, I think... To most of us, fairly quickly. Um, to Eckerd and Mockley, uh, not nearly fast enough. I and mean, they were always railing on, why is it taking so long? Why is it so slow? Uh, particularly Mockley, who had all these, these wonderful ideas. And, uh, and the computing industry just wasn't you know, keeping up with him. Um, they saw it as a very logical path. Why does it take so long? But um, Another interesting thing they saw, I mean, they, they were incredible visionaries in, in many ways. Um, this machine was built in a university, and, and von Neumann and, and Goldstein and many others thought that uh, computing would develop uh, within the university environment, um, Harvard, MIT, Stanford, wherever, um, and, and, and certainly Princeton, where von Neumann was. And, and many of the early machines were. But Eckerd and Mockley really believed that computing development would happen much faster in the commercial world, that um, 
there you had more incentive to get new products out quickly. Um, that's where the money was. That's where the need was. And um, that's one of the major reasons why they set out on their own and formed their own company, because they really thought it would happen faster there. <coughs> and obviously, the, you know, the history of computing development has, has borne that out. It's the companies have, are, were way ahead of the universities. What kind of reaction have you had to the book? Uh, it's it's been uh, it's been great. It's been um, a lot of fun. Uh, as I've gone around, um, there have been at different events um, two groups that that come together. Um, There's it, been a wonderful reaction from many of the old timers who were involved in some aspect, not just of ENIAC, but of of early computing, and um, it's great to hear their stories and all. But uh, but they're sort of uh, it also draws an element of young kids and uh, graduate students on down who are, you know, who grew up on computers and, and are fascinated. Um, and so to see them at different events start talking to each other about, well, we did this and why did you do that, and uh, it has really been fun. Um, uh, the families have been very supportive. Um, it's been, uh, I've gotten a lot of nice feedback from um, letters from historians. Um, and, uh, and other folks in the industry who, um, who have really been supportive of the project. You have another book in the works? I, I don't right now. <laughs> Just trying to hold down my, my day job. This is the cover of the book we've been talking about, ENIAC, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the World's First Computers. Scott McCartney, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.